0: If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, there in the New Testament. We are entering into the second half of the book of Ephesians, and um, we've come to a paragraph that runs from chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, but today we're just going to focus on verses uh, 1 through 6. And to start, I want to read uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. This is what God's word says. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. As I said, we've come to the middle of the book of Ephesians and as we do, we find a hinge of sorts that the that that the book turns on and it turns into a a new direction. Uh, After three chapters of strong doctrinal teaching, it's here in 4.1 that Paul gives his first major command of the letter. It's kind of unique when you think about it. He has focused almost exclusively on, on explaining the heart of the gospel and only now is he ready to explicitly state what he expects us to do in the light of it. The first command here is a command regarding how we are to walk as the people of God. We began our study in Ephesians with a a summary of the letter that went like this. God in Christ has made us a new people so that we might experience a new unity and walk in a new way. And so this second half of the letter with our identity as a, a new people and our calling to a new unity grounding us uh, it tells us how we are supposed to walk in a new way. It's about our manner of life, the way that we live day in and day out as children of God. But before we meditate on this first command, we need to work our way into it a little bit as we consider the way that Paul introduces it. Because he gives this command in the light of, of two things. First, it's given in the light of the gospel. He's giving this command to us in the light of the gospel. Um, We might think about two spotlights shining on this command, and one is the light of the gospel that he has just proclaimed. The word, therefore, is an important word in your Bible study, and it calls us to look back on on all that has been taught up until this point and to allow those truths to be the ground for this command and for all of the commands that are going to follow uh, in the rest of these chapters. So while the book makes a turn here in chapter 4, it doesn't abandon everything that we have been studying. And in that way, we're taught that application flows from theology, and theology always leads to application. Paul doesn't stop writing the book after chapter 3, nor does he start writing with the words of chapter 4. He shows us that what we believe has to change how we live, and that the intention of Scripture is to renew our minds so that we will walk in a new way. All of this means that this command and the ones that follow are not part of a new law. They're part of a new identity. Out of who God has made us and what his spirit is doing in us, we are to walk in a new way. So I say that to say we should should never apologize for teaching strong theology. But we should also never shy away from the strong application of that theology to our everyday lives. We should think hard about how our identity as children of God must change the way that we live as members of society, as members of the church, or as members of just our households. So Paul gives this command in the, the light of the gospel that he has just taken the time to meditate on and rejoice in. And second, we see that Paul gives this command in light of who he is in light of who he is as the Apostle Paul. Two things here about Paul, two things that have already been stated in Ephesians but that we come back to. First, he's an Apostle, which communicates divine authority. His apostolic authority is stated in chapter one, verse one, but here it's seen more subtly. He uses the pronoun I, which emphasizes that he is the one asking us to do this thing. He also uses this verb, I urge you, which is a verb that's used of someone that has authority and, and is addressing someone under him or her. Some translate this word as, as beg, I, I beg you. But I think that gets at Paul's passion, but it misses the weight that he has as an apostle. He is, he's urging and he's an, exhorting us as someone who has every right to do so. When I was a kid, I'd watch some little kids and sometimes they would say, if I asked them to do something, they would say, you're not the boss of me, or you're not my mom and dad. You don't have authority over me. Well, Paul has authority. He is allowed to say what he's saying. And while we're not in the same personal relationship with Paul as the Ephesians were, his authority comes down through the years to us here, sitting underneath the divinely inspired word of God. These, these scriptures written by Paul through the inspiration of the Spirit are authoritative on all matters of faith and how we live that faith out. Brothers and sisters, don't don't be fooled into thinking that something else or someone else should have the same kind of authority that God's word has in telling us how we are to live as disciples of Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. As Peter says of the scriptures in Second Peter one nineteen to twenty one, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what we have here in God's Word. So Paul writes with apostolic authority. Second, Paul writes as a prisoner for the Lord. If his, apost- if, if his apostleship communicates his authority, then his imprisonment communicates his commitment to Christ, his commitment to the gospel, and his commitment to God's people. He's a prisoner for Christ, and he's a prisoner for the Ephesians. And that reality means that we would do well to listen to what he has to say. Paul, Paul reminds those of us who teach others, and we all teach others, maybe in formal ways, maybe just in your home, but we're all teaching others. And he reminds us that we offer our instruction to others with the authority of the scripture, Scriptures backing us. But we must also seek to, to be those whose testimony shows our commitment to Christ and our love for others. As we lay down our lives in service of Christ and of His church, we lend integrity to the message that we preach We don't need to be perfect, but we need to be faithful. We need to be filled with true love for the people that we're teaching and instructing. The Scriptures are our authority, but our manner of life will have an influence on if and how those that we instruct actually listen to us. And so now we've come to the command, and and therefore our big idea for these first six verses of chapter 4, and this is our big idea. Walk worthy of your calling as God's people, By eagerly seeking the unity of the Spirit. Walk worthy of your calling as God's people. That's the the main command, the first command that we find here. Walk worthy. Walk worthy of your calling as God's people. How? By eagerly seeking the unity of the Spirit. That call to eagerly seek the unity of the Spirit is straight from verse 3. It's one amongst some other virtues that are listed, but I think it captures Paul's heart in these verses, and it bridges the ideas of verse 2 and, and verses 4 through 6. It links together these verses, and it it calls us to the kind of strong, eager, vibrant pursuit of unity that God wants us to have as his people. He wants us to see That if unity is something that Christ has purchased by his blood, then unity is something that the church must pursue with eagerness. My hope then is the Spirit today would cause us to ask questions of ourselves. Things like, do I eagerly seek the unity of the Spirit? Do we as a church seek after this unity as part of our calling? I pray that we would see that this unity is something that Jesus has has died for. And therefore, walking worthy of the gospel means eagerly seeking after it. So again, walk worthy of your calling as God's people. How? By eagerly seeking the unity of the Spirit. And before we move into verses 2 through 6, we should think about this command, walk worthy. It's a concept that Paul uses elsewhere, Colossians, First and 2 Thessalonians, and he probably uses it elsewhere because it's a helpful illustration. Uh, Trevor pointed out this wonderful word picture that comes from the word worthy uh, when we gathered for our fellowship of the word, and I'm going to do my best to steal it right now. Um, <laughs> the word translated worthy is the word axios, and it has this idea of weight bound up in it. Think about a balance scale. Can you picture a balance scale, one of those with the the bar across and the two sides that you weigh things on. Think about that balance scale. That, and that would have been used in the ancient world. If you wanted to purchase, um, say, a pound of grain, then the person who was selling you that grain would take a one pound weight, a stone of some kind, and put it on one side of the scale. And then they would fill the other side of the scale with, with grain until it balanced out. And that meant you had one pound of, of grain. When they balanced, the, the scale was said to be axios. It was said to be worthy. The weight of the grain and the weight of the stone were the same. They were were worthy of each other, as it were. Here's what Paul then is telling us. He's saying that our walk, our our manner of life, the way that we live as followers of Jesus, is to be worthy of our calling. They are to be of, of equal weight. So that makes me ask, well, what exactly is our calling? If my supposed to be worthy of of my calling what what's what's the stone that's being put on the side of the scale that is to be balanced by the way that I walk and live my life well I think in one sense our calling has to do with everything in chapters one through three which is a weighty thing indeed but while we try to keep all of that in mind as we enter this section I think we would also do well to remember the particular focus of, of the end of chapter 2 and also the closing petition of chapter three that calls to mind the image of of, us, of the church as God's temple where the fullness of his presence dwells. You remember thinking about that, that, that we are God's temple where his, his presence dwells in fullness? The image of the temple emphasizes the calling that Paul has been making clear in the first half of this book, which Stott summarizes with two words. How, how would we describe the calling? He gives us two words, unity and holiness. Unity and Holiness. Now think about the temple. If we are the temple, these two ideas are at the core of the temple, aren't they? Of course, holiness seems to be obvious. The priests were to be holy. They, they performed sacrifices to help make the people holy and set them apart. And of course, the holy of holies is at the center of the temple. And so too, we as God's temple must be holy as our God, who whom the temple represents as our God is holy himself. The unity of the temple is something that Paul has highlighted, the way that we're, we're being built together as a place for God's full presence to dwell in. These two ideas, then, actually, they break out really well in the following chapters. In verses 1 through 16, where we're at now, we see the, the unity the purchased by Jesus, that that's something that we need to pursue as part of our calling. And then, in chapter 4, verse 17, all the way to chapter 5, verse 21, Paul's talking about holiness of life. The, the set-apartness of who we are is described. So if we formerly walked like the Gentiles, like those who were dead and enslaved and condemned, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, then now we need to walk in the new way of the kingdom, the way of unity and the way of holiness. These two things make up what our calling is. And what a calling that is. It's a weighty calling, isn't it? Is there any way to live up to that calling? Can we possibly balance those scales? I think in one sense we would say no. No. There's no way on our own, apart from God's grace in Christ, that we could ever be people who walk in, in unity and holiness in a way that is worthy of, of who God is. But it's, it's only through the life of Jesus dwelling in us by faith and working powerfully through us for his glory, it's only through that that we can ever hope to balance the scale of, of, of living worthy of this gospel calling, which is again why chapters 1 through 3 have to come before chapters 4 through 6 and why we can't neglect the truth of those chapters, but instead, we have to allow the reality of what God has done to to fuel and to empower us to be the people that he's made us and called us to be. Works-based religion reads chapters four through six as who we need to be to be accepted by God or to be worthy of his love. But the gospel tells us that Christ has done all of these things that we read perfectly, and even died for all of the ways that we walk in an unworthy manner of our calling. The gospel says that we are loved in Christ, and what he asks from us is not perfection. He asks us for repentance and for faith. The gospel tells us that the Father has sent his Son to draw us near to him, and that the Son has sent the Spirit to indwell us and allow us to walk worthy of the calling that has been purchased for us through the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. We walk worthily. Not to prove ourselves worthy of God's love and salvation. Rather, we walk worthy because of his love and by his power working in us. As you think about the weight of this calling, it's also to note, note this, it's it's our calling. It's, it's not just an individual calling. We're, we're not called by ourselves to live lives that are worthy of, worthy of the calling that God has given us in the gospel. We're supposed to do this together. In fact, I think we probably run into the, the greatest trouble when we become overly focused on our own individual lives being a worthy reflection of our calling. We want that, true. But in actuality, we, we miss the point of the of the unity that we have amongst one another and of the holiness that we express as we walk with and love one another. We can't fulfill the calling to unity by ourselves. <laughs> we can't fulfill the calling to holiness by ourselves either. It's a corporate calling. So again, the calling can be summed up as unity and holiness with the emphasis on, on walking in unity found here in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. And so we're going to keep looking at verses 1 through 6, this call to walk worthy of your calling as God's people by eagerly seeking the unity of the Spirit. And we're going to see two things. We're going to see the heart attitudes that we need to pursue as we walk worthy, as well as the theology that motivates us to pursue this unity. But we haven't read the passage yet, if you can believe it. So let's do that. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Notice first in verses 2 through 3, the heart attitudes that promote unity. The heart attitudes that promote unity. When we think about our walk as Christians, again, we might be tempted to think about our internal and our private life, but we are reminded of the corporate nature of our call as Each of these heart attitudes has to do with how we interact with each other. So what the Spirit is producing in our hearts so that we will walk worthy of our calling to unity. What is the Spirit producing in our hearts so that we would walk worthy of this unity as God's family? So first we're called to humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness. That's the first heart attitude. We could think about these attitudes, these fruits of the Spirit separately, but it seems right to join them because Paul does. And it also could be that the Spirit is calling to mind the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. You remember those words? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am what? I am gentle and I am lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. What an amazing thing. That's how Jesus describes himself. He is gentle and lowly in heart. The heart of Jesus is filled with gentleness and humility. So we shouldn't be surprised that these twin virtues are what his spirit is producing in us. It's been well stated that humility is not to think less of oneself, but to think of oneself less. I like that. Humility is not to think less of oneself, but to think of oneself less. And in thinking of ourselves less, our minds and hearts are freed up to think about others more. We can begin to put the needs of others above our own. Like Christ, we are to lay down our rights and our desires, our preferences, and our tendency to focus on ourselves so that we can serve others. If we're followers of Jesus, then we are those who humbly die each day. For the good of others and so gentleness becomes the natural partner of humility we think of others first so we're we're not harsh we're not heavy-handed with people we have taken the time to put ourselves in the shoes of others so we're not quick to judge or quick to condemn we are ready to meekly come alongside and help others humility and gentleness how could these things not promote unity in god's people if, if we each thought about ourselves less and thought of each other with a spirit of meekness and, and gentleness, surely we would, we would grow in love for one another and therefore we'd grow in unity with one another. Another hard attitude we find is patience, patience. As our world gets faster and faster and technology brings things to us faster and faster, patience seems to be more and more elusive. We struggle to wait for anything that doesn't respond immediately to the the tap of our finger or the the click of a button. And our lack of patience extends to each other, including here in the church. Bowell says of, of this word for patience that it means, quote, to patiently tolerate someone who is difficult or foolish. To patiently tolerate someone who is difficult or foolish. That's what patience is. The King James translates this word as (laughs) long-suffering. And maybe that that gets at the idea as much as anything else. Patience means that we are willing and able by God's Spirit to suffer for a good long while with those who are difficult and foolish. Another helpful picture comes from the phrase that Paul adds here, bearing with one another in love. So there's this heavy load to carry, to to bear, and we have to to bear this weight together. If we are to be unified, we can't expect to get along all the time. Often we will need to forbear. We'll need to tolerate each other sometimes. The diversity of the body of Christ is a beautiful thing. It's also a very difficult thing. It leads to many opportunities for conflict and disagreement, and therefore, Opportunities for the spirit to teach us patience. Because change takes time. And by change, I don't necessarily mean that others change to fit our own personal preferences. That could happen. But it could be that we change. That we start to see where the things that we get so bent out of shape about are not really as important as we thought. And so we learn to live in peace with one another through patience. The roots of our patience and forbearance are said to be in love, bearing with one another in love. The love of Christ for us and our love for one another cause us to be patient. When Paul speaks of love in 1 Corinthians 13, do you remember how he begins? Love is patient. How patient God is with us. And yet, how quickly we reject others, especially those who are difficult but not in the church, right? At least that's not how it's supposed to be. Our unity is found not in getting rid of everyone who makes our life together challenging, but in having patience with one another, a patience that is born out of love. This leads to the final attitude, which is part of our main idea, and it's an eagerness to maintain unity. Thinking about these virtues that help us build unity, there's an eagerness to maintain unity. As you look out at your summer, I know some of you have already done exciting things, but is there anything that you're eager for? Something that you're looking forward to? Maybe a trip that you're going to take or the chance to see some family and, and friends. There's an excitement, there's a passion that overflows as you think about those things. And Paul says here that we walk worthy of our calling, we, that when we walk worthy of our calling, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity in the church is what gets us up in the morning. It's the last thing we think about before we go to bed at night. We just want the church to be unified. We're so eager for that. If love keeps us patient with one another, then it says here that seeking peace makes us eager to maintain unity. We're peacemakers. This isn't a a peacemaking, though, that avoids difficult conversations that are necessary or that promotes peace above truth and honesty, but our eagerness to stay unified means that, that we strive for peace, if I could use two words that maybe seem contrary, we fight for peace with one another. Which means that, that we get rid of some things. We don't want anything to do with gossip. We root out biting sarcasm. We, we deal with issues quickly. We refuse to let them fester because we're eager for unity and we know peace brings unity. We don't create divisions. If we're going to talk behind someone's back, we're going to talk about how God's working in them. We're gonna talk about, bring compliments about who they are. We're not seeking division, we're eager for unity, so we want peace. Bringing all these heart attitudes together, I would say this, brothers and sisters, our, our world is filled with pride and harshness. It's a place of impatience and lack of love. It's a place where people are eager to divide and they're quick to cause conflict. The world is marked by short fuses and road rage and revenge and hot takes that take no thought of anyone else. We give no one the benefit of the doubt and we give everyone a piece of our minds. And often the church is just as bad. Sometimes we're worse. So what if we as a church ask the Spirit to help us? And we said, Spirit, would you fill us with humility and gentleness, with patience and love, with an eagerness to hold to the unity that we have in Christ. What if if we did that? Well, I think we'd start to display the gospel the way that Jesus has called us to. We'd look like the, the Savior that we proclaim who modeled all of these attitudes perfectly for us. What a deep contrast, that kind of unity built on love and bound up by peace What a contrast that would be in our world to our friends and our neighbors. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Paul tells us that these heart attitudes are going to promote the unity that we are called to and that Jesus has bought for us. I wonder if one of those things stands out to you as something that you need more of in your your life or in our life together as a church, as God's people. Something that you, by God's grace and through his power, could pursue as a means of walking worthy of our calling to unity as God's people. Maybe one of those things stands out to you. Maybe you want to meditate a little bit further. Two passages of Scripture that have come to my mind as I read these heart attitudes that promote unity. One is 1 Corinthians 13, I mentioned earlier, where Paul talks about the nature of Christian love. And the other is the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. I would commend both of those passages to you as a place to meditate, to think about these heart virtues that promote unity within the church so that we would look more like Christ uh, and, and therefore, look more like the unified church he's called us to be. Well, Paul mentions the Spirit there in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and that seems to spark something in his mind. So we move from these heart attitudes to, in verses 4 through 6, the theological truth that grounds our unity. The, the theological truth that grounds our unity as we've talked about the unity that Christ has purchased for us, we've said that there's, there's nothing external that can divide we who are in Christ. But what exactly do we believe about Jesus that unites us? And, and if someone denies some key aspect of our faith, then is that a good reason to divide from them? Well, here in in verses 4 through 6, we find a list of truths about who God is and about what he has done to unite us. And and this list, in many ways, is a distillation of the truths from chapters 1 through 3. The key word in the list is one, indicating that there is one truth about each of the seven doctrines that are presented. And the oneness of these doctrines is what makes us one. Also key to this list is, is the Trinity, as these seven truths are organized around the three persons of the Godhead. Paul believed uh, the catechism question from last Sunday that the kids learned. Question three of the New City Catechism, how many persons are there in God? Does anyone know the answer? I won't make you do it now, but the answer is there are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul believed that, and so do we. And as we look at these truths, we might think about them in terms of, of of the Trinity, but we can also think about them in terms of what some people have called closed and open-handed issues. Think about what unites us and what divides us. There are doctrines that, that we hold with a, a closed hand, meaning that they are they are foundational and they are fundamental to our faith. And there's an aspect of, of each of these doctrines here that we hold with a closed hand. These, these closed hand core doctrines are the basis of our unity. To deny one of them would be to give us legitimate cause to separate from another person. However, there are also open-handed issues, meaning there are things that we believe about which there is legitimate debate. And while we might disagree with people about some of these open-handed matters, we can still be unified with them if they hold... If, if they hold some sort of cl- open-handed issue, as long as they, they agree with these closed-handed doctrines, we can still have unity with them, even though these we disagree about some of these issues. And so Paul begins this list, and he talks about some of these, what I would say, are closed-handed issues. These are things that are core to our unity. He begins his list with the spirit, which he ties to the reality of the one body that is The church, this is what he fleshed out in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. He shows us that that if we are indwelt by God's Spirit, then we are all a part of his one body. While there are many churches, there is only one body of Christ made up of all his true, true children throughout the world and throughout the ages. So therefore, we hold with a closed hand the truth of God's Spirit given to all of God's children through faith because it is the one indwelling Spirit that makes us, One body. Related to that, the person is the person of of Jesus. And there's some doctrines related to who Jesus is. We're told that there's one hope, one faith, and one baptism. Why? Because there is one Lord. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our Master. He alone is the one whose life, death, and resurrection we have faith in. He alone is the one whose life. Death and resurrection, we are baptized into. He alone is the one whose life, death, and resurrection gives us the hope of eternal life. To deny our Lord, whether it be a denial of his deity or of his death or of his resurrection or of the promise of his coming, is to deny what holds us together in unity. We are one because there is only one master that we serve, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And finally, there is one God and Father of all. He's the creator of all people, but he's the God and Father of all those who come to him through Christ by repentance and faith. And so the all here likely refers to God's people, meaning the Father is over all his people. He is working through all his people, and he is in all of his people. Now, we, we would do well to walk through this list of seven truths and ask, well, what are the closed-handed doctrines related to each of them? But we should not miss that, that Paul is showing us that the unity of the church is rooted in the unity of the Trinity and the work he has done. In God's mathematics, we look at these seven one statements and we can come up with a, a math problem. It goes like this. One plus 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 one equals one. If we hold these seven things together, that's what holds us all together as one people. John Stott concludes with these great words. He says, We must assert that there can be only one Christian family, only one Christian faith, hope, baptism, and only one Christian body because there is only one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods. Is there only one God? Then he has only one church. Is the unity of God inviolable? then so is the unity of the church. The unity, unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. That's a statement, isn't it? And then he says, it is more possible to split the church than it is to split, it, it is no more possible to split the church than it is to split the Godhead. Wow. And yet, we split the church all the time time. That's a term in Christianity, isn't it? Church split. <laughs> We've all heard it. And sadly, we are often more eager to split the church than to maintain its unity. We are more focused on the list of things we disagree on than the core truths that we all hold dear. Could that be the result of not pursuing those heart attitudes that promote the unity and emphasizing things other than the core truths that unite us? How do we maintain our unity? This is a, a deep question. We don't want to split as a church. How do we maintain our unity? How can we be a church that unites God's people, not only here, but even in our city, and in, in, in our world? And this is where God's word is so practical and so helpful. It says, well, If you wanna walk worthy of your calling, the calling to unity as God's people, here's what you do. Seek after these heart attitudes. Let the Spirit work these heart attitudes in you. Let God's Spirit build humility and gentleness and patience and love and peace and an eagerness to maintain this unity within you. How do you split a church? By doing the opposite. You don't seek humility, you seek pride. You don't seek gentleness, you seek harshness. You don't seek patience, you have a short fuse. You don't seek love, you find reasons to hate each other. You don't seek peace, you try to cause division. You're not eager to maintain unity, you're ready to run for the hills as fast as you can. We've got to seek after these things if we're going to maintain our unity. And also we have to focus on who God is and the gospel truth that unites us not the things that divide us. We focus on the things that unite us, the truth that holds us together. We hold firmly to the truth, but we are also eager to be unified to everyone who holds to that same truth, even though they might express their faith and practice in different ways. Friends, this is not easy, but by God's Spirit, this is what we can do as we seek these hard attitudes and and as we as we ask God to help us, and as we hold to these core truths and and keep the main thing the main thing and don't let all these other things crowd in and cause division within us. Oh, there's so much more to say within this passage, but there's also more to do, more to do by the power of God working in us. So so let's continue to meditate on these scriptures, but let's also apply them to our lives by God's grace and for his glory, let's walk worthy of our calling as God's family. How? By eagerly seeking the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pause and allow God's Spirit even to apply these truths to us. Maybe he would bring one of these heart attitudes to your mind that he, that we need to grow in. Maybe he would firm you up and in some of these truths, or even help you to see things that you're making a main thing that is is not a reason to divide. But let's allow God's Spirit to speak to our hearts, and then I will close this in prayer. Father, would you keep us vigilant and eager to seek unity? Lord, help us not to become lazy in these things, because if we're lazy, we'll divide, we'll split. But by your Spirit working in us, making us humble and gentle and patient, loving and eager, and by the, the Spirit keeping us tight in these doctrines that we hold, Lord, you can keep us together and make us a display of your glory in this world as we are united across all the lines that might divide us. Father, make us a a light of of the gospel through the love that we have for one another. Thank you for the ways that you have done that through the years. Lord, forgive us for the ways that, that we have failed. Lord, and as we look Even in days ahead, would you make us, days ahead, would you make us even more a church that models the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? We ask this all not in our own strength, Lord, but because of your strength, and we ask you to do it through your power working through us. In Jesus' name, amen.